Our scripture reading today is from 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Amen. Um, Y'all, this is the word of God. And it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And that's pretty sweet, but this is even sweeter still. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we come uh, because we, uh, we want to taste just how sweet your word is. Uh, Lord, would you set our hearts to hungering, our souls to thirsting, and Holy Spirit, have your way. Uh, what you're able to do by and through your word is staggering, and so we are here, we're here this morning to be staggered uh, by what you would do in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to hazard a guess that when you think about reading the Apostle Paul, maybe if you're thinking, okay, look, it's a new year, I'm going to really jump into the Apostle Paul. Probably Thessalonians is not the first thing that comes to mind. We typically will think of maybe Romans or Galatians. Interestingly, First uh, and Second Thessalonians, after the book of Galatians, are Paul's earliest letters. So what we see in First and Second Thessalonians uh, really is the the earliest life of the Christian church in, in Paul's ministry. And there was a lot going on in Thessalonica. You can actually go to Thessaloniki today. It's in the Thermaic Gulf, the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea in in Greece. It's a bustling city. It was a port city in Paul's day, a port city today. There's Aristotle University there uh, to this day, serving over forty thousand and students. In Paul's day, he had established a church in Thessalonica, but the opponents of the gospel ran him out of town. And so later, he sends Timothy there to to check on the church, and what he finds out is that there are a lot of pastoral needs going on uh, in Thessalonica. Uh, Many of them were grieving deeply, and their hearts were breaking. They're very confused, even beginning to doubt their own salvation, doubting the reality of the gospel, because many believers had died. And so their hearts were breaking. They were beginning to doubt, is Jesus even going to return? Uh, There was sexual promiscuity. Some of them were thinking, well, since Jesus is supposed to return, maybe I don't need to work. And so some Christians were actually refusing to work, relying on wealthier Christians to to keep them up. And so Paul had a lot of things to deal with in these letters. Uh, He... He assures them that Jesus is, in God's due time, going to return. The gospel is a reality. He called them uh, to lives of sexual purity. He called them to work with their own hands. Uh, He called them to build up the church. And then he calls them to three, three things that form what I would call a holy constancy. Three things um, among which there is a a symbiotic relationship, kind of a symbiotic fueling one of the other, and and that's what what he's calling us to today. Now, we've just gotten through Christmas, and I think when we think about Christmas and our wish list and getting what we want and those sorts of things, and and maybe some of the kids in here, you got just the toys you wanted. Um, One of my favorite toys when I was little, and and I go back a ways, maybe some of you are old enough to remember these. You remember Evil Knievel? You remember the, the guy, the Evil Knievel, the stunt man, did the motorcycle stunts? I had an Evil Knievel motorcycle, and you could set the motorcycle in and crank this thing up, and when you got it really, really going fast, you stopped, it would take off and, and jump. I loved I was obsessed with Evil Knievel. I had an Evil Knievel Halloween costume that I wore, even if it wasn't Halloween, you'd just see me around. I'd be, I'd be Evil Knievel. I had my mask on and everything. 
And then the other thing that drove my mama, my poor mama crazy was that I jumped ramps all the time in our neighborhood. And I had ramp building materials stored all around the woods around our house, concrete cinder blocks with big boards of plywood so that I could make ramps and jump them. It's a wonder I am in one piece standing before you today. I remember one night, um, Evil Knievel was about to make a jump over some, you know, 30 or something trucks. You know what he used to do? Those of you used to watch his stunts on TV. My mama and daddy were out on a date. My grandmother lived with us. Now, my daddy was older when, uh, when I was born. And so I really only knew my grandmother in her uh, late 70s through her early 90s. And so she was, uh, she was elderly when, when I knew her, but she lived with us. In fact, uh, my dad had built an apartment onto our house so that she could have her own kitchen and bathroom and kind of one room, living room, bedroom combo. And so this night, Evil Knievel was about to make a jump. And about five minutes before this televised event took place, I go barreling down the hallway, bust into grandmother's uh, apartment, and I'm yelling, grandmother, grandmother, you've got to come see Evil Knievel do this stunt. You've got to see him jump all these cars. And I rush in only to be stopped in my tracks as this aging woman holds up a bony hand in my face. She's kneeling before her dresser drawer, and she's praying. And, and, and there was this sort of stunned silence that fell over me. I knew at that moment something even more incredible than what Evil Knievel was about to do was taking place in front of me. Even at seven or eight years of age, I knew that I was standing in the presence of the Holy I knew even at that young age, I had, as it were, entered into the inner sanctum as an old woman knelt before her dresser drawer and was praying. And I'll never forget her lips moving and barely a whisper as she was whispering words to the Lord. And I didn't immediately run away to go back to see what evil Knievel was going to do, whether he was going to make his jump. I remember just standing there as a little child, just, just watching, just watching her pray it just drew me, drew me in. Now, you know, speaking of, of being, being a kid, my, my mother passed away a couple of years ago. And when, when my wife went through um, her belongings, trying to get the house settled and everything, she found a lot of my childhood belongings. And one of the things that my mama kept of mine were my yearly Christmas wish lists. My yearly Christmas wish lists. And now my kids make PowerPoint presentations for what they want to do. And I'm not even kidding. With links embedded for where I can go get what, what, they, what they so desperately need. And I'd make out these Christmas wish lists. And my mama, my mama kept them. You know, Christmas, all right, it's a, it's a season of being merry and bright. It's a season of giving. It's a season of, of, of hope and, and desire and, and trying to meet each other's needs and, and meet as many of each other's wants as we can. It's a season of, of merry and bright um, sometimes. Not for all of us. I mean, for some of us, this time of year is especially hard, not simply because we didn't get something we wanted on our, our wish list. Um, hearts get heavy. Uh, sadness takes over. Our eyes hold back a damn burst of tears. We don't even know why. Um, hearts are broken. Relational loss. Broken, broken dreams. Broken relationships. Maybe, maybe for you, it's just the prospect of, of tonight and tomorrow, a new year rolling around, and, and you feel that pressure of making a new set of resolutions that you know you're going to bat a thousand on for about a week and three days, and then it just, it just peters out, and, and that brings its, its own pressure. So, so we've come uh, to ask a question, uh, specifically a question about prayer, and even more specifically, what does it mean 
not just to pray, but to pray without ceasing. And again, to get at the answer to this question, we have to look at more than what Paul says about prayer, but to look at all three of the commands that he gives there. Because again, these three commands call us to a holy constancy, and these three commands symbiotically fuel and enliven each, each, of, the, each of the other two. Uh, rejoice always, pray ceaselessly, and give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always. What makes joy hard for you? What makes, right as you sit there right now, what makes the prospect of joy hard for you? Um, Probably for a lot of us, what makes joy hard is simply not knowing what joy is, right? Not knowing what, what joy is. Most of us settle for what I would call a joy of contingency, uh, meaning, meaning this. Uh, if I feel like I have control of, of things, if my situation is working out well, if I get everything on my wish list, if I have what Francis Schaeffer would call an ample supply of personal peace and affluence, um, everything that, that, that I think ought to be mine, then I will assume I ought to figure out what it means to feel joyful. The joy of contingency. Um, Joy, it's it's a word that that we use uh, as Christians, um, but it's not easily defined. Joy sustains when happiness uh, eludes us. Joy makes happiness more than a a fleeting feeling. Joy is kind of like the word precious. It's hard to define without using the word itself. Joy is kind of like the word precious. It just sort of means what it sounds like sounds like it means. Uh, In Scripture, in both the Old and the New Testament, the idea of joy is glad pleasure, not always determined by your circumstance. One, One biblical scholar put it this way, biblical joy is a dancing heart, a heart that's able to dance even when the music is in a minor key. Um, we, we need to develop a taste for joy, his joy, dancing heart joy. It's the Trinitarian joy, when Paul says rejoice always, he's calling us to the Trinitarian joy of knowing God as our Father, the, the contenting joy of knowing Christ and dwelt by his Spirit. You see, you see our, our joy and our rejoicing always is to flow uh, from an understanding of the person and work of Christ, who he is, what he has done, is doing, and ever will do for us. You know, we, we sing at this time of year, joy to the world, the Lord has come. You know, at Easter, we're going to sing raise your joys and triumphs high because Easter guarantees us that we will see him again and our joy will never be taken away as we read in John 16, 22. But, but the reality is, if you're like me, too often we settle for a joy of contingency. I will be joyful. I will feel joy and that will be contingent upon fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. And that that just takes us for a ride. What what we need when Paul says rejoice always, rejoice always, this one who would find himself over and again in prison, this one who would find himself uh, in great need, this one who would find himself persecuted, beaten, tortured for the gospel, says what you need is, is the joy of Christ. You ever wonder what Jesus, what would have been on his wish list had he made one? Jesus' wish list, like I can give you some insight into what's on Jesus' wish list for you and for me. He says in John 15, 11, this, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus wants you to have not just joy in some generic sense. He wants you to have joy, not, not just kind of the, the euphoric feeling that you get at the end of a Hallmark movie, right? And, and that's all we watch in our house are Hallmark movies, 
That's the only channel that we actually need to pay for on cable because that's all we watch. That's all we're allowed to watch in our house because my wife and my daughter, and we have a dog named Zeke who actually loves watching Hallmark movies. He's just so at ease and, and calm when Hallmark movies are on. That's all we watch. But, but what Paul is calling us to here is not some generic sort of joy. He's calling us to the joy of Jesus himself. Jesus own joy, the joy that was Jesus' joy, the joy that he knew and experienced. Jesus says, I want you to have that as well. That's what's on Jesus' wish list for, for you this Christmas, this, this New Year. Think, think about that. Jesus wants you to know, to possess, to, to be possessed by his joy, the joy that is his by virtue of the fact that he has lived for you, that he's died for you, uh, that, that, that he is in control of all of your seemingly uncontrollable contingencies. And he's all that for you. So rejoice always and pray ceaselessly, Paul says. Now, praying ceaselessly does not mean that we are to stand on the street corner uh, like the Pharisees for all to see and hear, as we read in Matthew 6, verse 5. That doesn't mean that, that we're to view prayer as sort of this platform for public monologuing. Remember the movie The Incredibles? What was the weakness of the bad guys? Oh, you, all, you almost got me monologuing, right? And sometimes we think, well, that's what prayer ought to be. If I can pile up words, and especially if I can make them eloquent, then God will take, take notice of my praying. It's not what, it's not what we're called to here. We're not, we're, we're not called to, to, to living life where every single word of our mouth is to be chanting prayers or, or our hands are always folded in formal prayer. Our hands never set at work or at play as if work and play are not in and of themselves in a certain sense. Prayers of dependence and glorifying of God lifted up to him. Um, Paul's invitation instead is, are you ready for this? To regular, ready Reverent, repentant, receptive, and even rambunctious praying. And, and let this be, let this be the, 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 sort of, the, the sort of operating system of your life, always running, ready, uh, ready to be opened up at any time where, where your heart just is ready to pray. Um, but maybe you say, well, look, I'm just not very good at, at prayer. I'm not... I'm not eloquent, I'm not, my prayers aren't that theologically sophisticated, and I can't imagine that the Lord takes notice. I'm not, I'm not very good at prayer. Well, hang on, help is on the way. Um, the last time I was here uh, at InTown, interestingly enough, I preached on prayer. And I told you then about my favorite sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Now, most of my... Um, most of my academic um, life has been spent on, on Jonathan Edwards. And, and I love him for, for a host of reasons. And, and he's one of the most penetrating theologians that, you, that you'll ever study. Um, but, but my favorite thing by Edwards is a sermon on prayer entitled, The Most High, A Prayer-Hearing God. And, and in that, and I told you uh, a few months ago when I was here, and I'll just remind you quickly, Edward says we need to know certain things about prayer. And the first thing is we need to know something about our Father God. And he, and he says this, when you come to pray, your Father's posture toward you is such that he desires to be conquered by your prayers. Think about that. Any dads in this room? 
Any daddies in this room and your little girl or your little boy, when they come to you with their needs, with their desires, they come to you with their hearts, you're like putty in their hands. Can, can, you, can you wrap your heart around the notion that your father God loves you so much that he desires, his posture toward you is that he wants to be conquered by your prayers. He wants to be conquered by your needs and, and by your wants, just, just the way I am. With my kids, right? I remember when, when Lydia, my daughter, was a little bitty girl. I took her to Toys R Us. And she may have been, I don't know, three, uh, maybe, maybe three years of age. And there was this huge wall of stuffed animals. And she's sitting there in the little, little shopping buggy and I'm pushing her around. And she sees this wall of stuffed animals. And I'll never forget her saying, oh, daddy, may I pick one out? I was ready to back the minivan up to the front door and start shoveling stuffed animals. And I was so, I was just putty in her hands. Can you, can you see your father's posture towards you? That he wants to be conquered by your prayers, right? You wrap your heart around the notion that God loves you that much. You might be thinking about New Year's resolutions, and, and, and that's fine. Um, and I want to suggest this. Jonathan Edwards, when he was a young man, he was born in 1703, and this was around the year 1722. He wrote out a list of resolutions that he was going to sort of uh, write out to sort of form and guide the way he would live the Christian life. And one of the things that he said, and, and I love this, and, and I need this, so just indulge me. I'm, I'm going to read it just from my own heart, and maybe, maybe you need it as well. He said this, resolution 25, I'm resolved to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. So what is that one thing that in you is that causes you in the least to doubt that your father loves you? And would you resolve by the power of the Spirit to say, I'm gonna direct all my forces against that because whatever that one thing in me is, that in the least causes me to doubt that my father loves me, it is a lie. And there is no truth in it. And I'm going to, in 2018, I am going to direct all of my forces against it. Your father's posture toward you is he wants to be overcome by your needs. He wants to be conquered by your prayers. And then Edward says this, that's your father's posture towards you, but when you come and pray, and this is good news for those of us who aren't very good at praying, when you come in prayer, it's not that you have to think, okay, look, I have really been screwing up for the last couple of weeks, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to take the next couple of weeks, clean my act up, and, and, and kind of live right and, and sort of get myself back in a little bit better shape and earn my way back into the Lord hearing from me. He says this about Jesus. Jesus, by his blood, has paid for your sins so that your sins are no longer a cloud through which your prayers cannot penetrate. Then he says this. Jesus hand delivers your prayers to the Father. So what do you have going for you when it comes to prayer? A father whose posture is so inclined towards you that he says, overcome me, conquer me by your desires. And Jesus who says, hand me your prayers, I'll take it to the Father for you. Because again, as Hebrews 7.25 says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through faith in him, for he, Jesus, always lives to intercede for them. 
But, but here's something I want to say about the Holy Spirit. When it, when it comes to, to praying, and especially for those of us who maybe we don't feel like we're very good at, at, at prayer, um, and I just want to warn you, we're going to go into the deep end here for a second, and hopefully all of the, the, the eggnog sleepies have worn off and, and you're ready to go because we're about to go. Um, I love Paul's words. <laughs> I love Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, it's like a little Bible within the Bible. If you want to know what the Bible is about, it's almost as if Romans 8 is like the dust jacket blurb to the Bible. It's like a little Bible within the Bible. And in Romans chapter 8, I love what Paul says uh, to encourage us about prayer. And you can turn there, verses 26 to 28. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Now stop there just for a second. Is, is that not at some level refreshing to you? To know that the Apostle Paul says, look, let's just be honest. We don't know, we don't always know how to pray. We don't always know what to pray for as we ought to. So, so if you feel like you pray stumbling, bumbling prayers, you're in good company. You are not alone. We don't always know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Um, and, and this is not a scenario in which the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, look, um, you, 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 really, you really stink at praying. You're really bad at praying, so you need to just sit back, be quiet, and I'll take it from here and see if I can bail your clumsy prayer uh, out of the ditch here. No, the Holy Spirit is the one of whom we read in John's gospel. He is, he is the, the parakletos in John 14, the one who comes alongside of us, the helper, the, the, the come-alongsider, if I can say it that way. The, the Holy Spirit interceding for us is not him saying, look, you're no good at praying. Sit back, be quiet. I'll take it from here. It's not like I was with Lydia on Christmas night, uh, we got her some, some recording software and a really nice recording mic and um, a little interface, and she wanted me to uh, help her get it set up, but it was late and I was tired, so I just set it all up, and then when I got it set up and turned it on, I started getting into it, and I started messing around with it, right? And the next day, she said to me, um, rather, rather tactfully, she said, uh, Daddy, last night, I, I watched you hook things up and work the software and my interface and the mic, but I want you to teach me. Let me get my hands on it so I can learn how to do it. You see, verse 27 tells us that that's what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't come and say, you don't know how to pray. Sit back, be quiet. Don't worry about praying. I'll just intercede for you. I got you. No, he says, look, come along with me. I'm going to come alongside of you. I'm going I'm to teach you. I'm going to pray with you. And for you. C.S. Lewis uh, was once asked by the great Welsh preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was going to write another book. And Lewis replied, uh, when I have learned more about prayer. In fact, one of the only surviving audio reels of C.S. Lewis' spoken voice uh, is from the, the, the series of World War II broadcasts that he did, which later became mere Christianity. But those reels were recycled and, and reused, and so virtually all of them are lost except for one. You can go on YouTube and you can, you can hear it. And it's the one where he is going to talk about, he's giving an address on the difficulty of prayer, he says. Prayer, like that. His last book, published posthumously, 
uh, was a book entitled Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer, in which he's writing to his imaginary friend Malcolm about struggles with, with the prayer life. And um, he's very transparent about his own, his own struggles with, with prayer. And, and like everything I read in C.S. Lewis, uh, the, the theologian in me at times wants to say, Dear Jack, I think you, you probably could have tweaked or nuanced this statement this way, and it would have been a little more theologically accurate. But the weary traveler in me, which is never very far from the theologian in me, always finds myself when I come to Lewis, much like Jill in the silver chair before Aslan at the stream, with her lips still wet from drinking, the most wonderful water she'd ever tasted. And when we come to letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, in letter 21, he admits that we find prayer irksome, irksome. And he, and he says this, let, let's just admit it. We find it irksome and, and we find relief actually when we've said our amen and the prayer is over. Whew, glad that's done. And then he asked a question that, that I would hazard a guess every one of us in this room have wondered before. In prayer, is it just what he calls a soliloquy? It's just me talking to myself. You ever felt that way about prayer? You're praying as sincerely as you know how, but then, then that question creeps in, am I just talking to myself at the end of the day? And Lewis says there is actually a soliloquy going on. It's a divine soliloquy. He, he says, in effect, this, God participates with us in our prayers to him. He speaks through us to himself. It's as if the Father is saying, um, my Holy Spirit knows what's up. He, he knows my will for you. He will help you find words. He will help you form words. I'm listening as you pray. You're learning as you pray. I'm enjoying this, and so should you. Now, is there mystery here? Is there, is there mystery? Um, well, we're dealing with the triune God. Unfathomable, unmanageable, untamable. He wouldn't be big enough to help us in our time of need if he weren't mysterious, past figuring out. So is there mystery? Yes, there is mystery with our triune God. There is mystery when it comes to prayer. Merry Christmas. Because if he weren't mysterious, if he weren't beyond us, he couldn't, he couldn't help us. But, but what about the fact that I still stumble in my prayers? And my prayers just seem a mess at times. There's an old Puritan named Thomas Brooks who said, the Holy Spirit can pick sense out of a confused prayer. The Holy Spirit can pick sense out of a confused prayer. And that's good news um, because I pray a fair amount of stumbling, bumbling prayers. Can I make a theologically nerdy observation? And maybe you're thinking, David, you've been theologically nerdy the very minute you stepped into the pulpit. Fair enough. But, but I'm going to make a theologically nerdy statement. Prayer is such Trinitarian engagement. It, it, it involves theology proper, who our Father God is. It involves what we call soteriology, which is a theological word for salvation. What Jesus has done in his priestly work and his atoning work on our behalf to save us, to redeem us, is the very thing that opens the way into the Holy of Holies. It is pneumatological, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit aiding us and interceding with us and for us. When we pray, we are engaging and being engaged by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we are to rejoice always, to pray 
readily, reverently, repentantly, receptively, rambunctiously. We give thanks in all circumstances. And let's admit it. This just sounds crazy to many of us. Give thanks in all circumstances may even make us angry when we think about how raw and how hard uh, some of our circumstances are. When he says give thanks in all circumstances, this is not denial that leads to some sort of Pollyanna. This is discipleship that fits us for heaven. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. You see, when when Paul says all things work for good, he's not saying that God can take lemons and make lemonade. He says all things work together for our good, the good, the bad, and the ugly. All things work together for our good precisely because of the purpose to which we've been called. Which purpose we read about in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, the purpose to which you and I have been called is conformity to Christ. And so the happy times that make our hearts glad conform us to Christ. And the times of great suffering are so pregnant with meaning because they conform us to the suffering servant himself, Jesus Jesus Christ. And then Paul says in verse 30, for those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. In other words, God's gonna finish Going to finish what he, what he starts. J.C. Ryle says this. J.C. Ryle, a great bishop of Liverpool. I know some of you think that there's someone or some group else that was the greatest thing to come out of Liverpool. As great as the Beatles are, I would suggest that J.C. Ryle is even better. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, nothing whatever, whether great or small, can happen to a believer without God's ordering and permission. There is no such thing as chance, luck, or accident in the Christian's journey through this world. All is arranged and appointed by God, and all things are working together for the believer's good. Understand this, when suffering comes into your life, you have not met a stroke of bad luck. Luck does not exist. Jesus does. And there's all the difference in the world. And and I say this not glibly, because last night, as I was sort of going over the sermon, um, kind of getting it in my heart and in my head, I was doing it in the context of having just returned from the hospital um, just last night where a member of my Sunday school class uh, over at Central, member uh, of the flock at Central, is, is suffering greatly with cancer. And the news isn't good. And um, this humble, humble woman and her husband, they, they've had such a wearying journey through this. And, and truly, it felt so pitiful to me just, just to be there. Um, and so I don't say this, I don't say this glibly. T- Tim Keller wrote a book called Walking with God Through Suffering. It's fantastic. You ought to, you ought to read it. Um, he says this, no matter what precautions we take, No matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. He goes on to say, in the secular view, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst 
of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows. Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 9, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the imagination of the hearts of men, the things that God has for those who love him. In the words of Bachman Turner Overdrive back in the 70s, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's the hope of the Christian gospel. And, and there's an invitation to us to willingly let our triune God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, draw us to such a place of intimacy and prayer uh, where there is willing, grateful, thankful surrender. Could it ever be more, more beautifully expressed than poet John Donne, lived from 1572 to 1631, who before becoming a minister at the age of 43 was, um, it is reported, a notorious ladies' man, a playgoer, and a writer of sensual poetry, who would write with that same passion, only now purified. And I love this. Maybe this could be our prayer as we move into the new year. Batter my heart, tripersoned God. What a beautiful way to start a, start a prayer. Batter, subdue, batter, beat my heart down. Batter my heart, tripersoned God. For you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to men that I may rise and stand or throw me and bend, you're forced to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another due, labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason your viceroy in me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but I'm betrothed to your enemy. Divorce me untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you, Lord, ravish me. Paul's invitation is to be ravished. Are you ready to trust Jesus this new year? Uh, to seek him diligently, delightedly in prayer? And let's make our way to the table of grace. Because when we come to the table of grace, um, what we see here is Jesus' own eternal rejoicing over you. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 2 says, Who for the joy before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Who was the joy set before Jesus as he went to the cross? I'm looking at the joy of Jesus. You were the joy of Jesus that compelled him to the cross. We come to this table and, and, and we have declared to us his, his eternal joy. You make his heart rejoice now. He makes your heart rejoice. You will make his heart rejoice forever. We come here to his eternal joy and, and, and rejoicing. We, we come to this table and, and we receive, as it were, his prayer spoken over you. For again, Hebrews 7.25, he always lives to make intercession for you. We, we come here to this table and we have his eternal thanksgiving for you. Because what we read in Hebrews chapter 2 is that he is not ashamed to call you his sisters and his brothers. And it says that he declares his father's praise over you in the presence of his father. He is so thankful for you. He is not ashamed of you. And when we come to this table, he tells us that anew. And why do we come every week? Because if you're like me, what? We forget it every week. And we need to be reminded. We come to the table, um, those of us who have been baptized into the church of Jesus Christ and are members uh, of, a, of a local Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church because we, we know we so desperately need Jesus. Now, if you're here and you would say, I don't know that I would identify as a Christian. I don't know that I would 
call myself a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're just exploring the truth claims of Christianity uh, for the first time. It's great. It's a great place to do that. It's a great time of year to do that. Uh, we're glad you're here. Um, rather than coming and, and taking of, uh, of the bread and, and the wine, uh, you could remain in your seat and just uh, consider the things that you're seeing. Uh, reach out to someone around you and, and ask, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Maybe you'd want to just come um, and, and observe other Christians um, being hungry and thirsty for the Lord Jesus. I'm going to encourage you, if you would, would you stand?